0: Father, we do praise You this morning for Your Word. We're thankful, Father, that we come not to hear the wisdom of man. We're thankful that we come not to worship our own achievements, Father, but that we come to receive the wisdom of God and to worship the one true God, You alone who has made the heavens and the earth and all that is within them. Father, we rejoice in knowing that we have a great eternal God who not only creates us, but who has called us to life from death in His Son, Jesus Christ. Father, we rejoice in knowing that it is because of Christ and His death on the cross as He received Your eternal wrath, that we can gather now and worship in spirit and truth because we come before you as those whom you have declared to be not guilty. What a great and abiding truth that we live and breathe in light of eternity with Christ. Father, I pray this morning for all who have gathered with heavy Burdened hearts. Father, that in this hour, You will relieve them. You will release them from the bondage of stress, the troubles and cares of this world, that they can rightly come before You as we sing praises, as we pray together, as we hear from Your Word, as we give of our bounty. Father, in all of these things, that you can help us all to worship you with joy in spirit and truth, and that we would come before you with clean hands and pure hearts. Father, I pray for those of our brothers and sisters at Ephesus Church who are suffering. Father, I pray that you would grant comfort and hope. But even more, Father, I pray that you would help your people, that you would give them strength to suffer well, to suffer with joy. That as they suffer, that they show their greatest treasure is it not in health, is not in comfort, is not in this world, but is in Jesus Christ who suffered and died on our behalf that we might live forever and ever, and that they would cry out, O oh, death, where is your sting? Help us, O oh Lord, to live and to serve and to be a people who no matter our circumstances will look death in the face and laugh, because we know that death is no more when we are in Christ Jesus. Oh the depths of the riches and wisdom and knowledge of God. How unsearchable are your ways, Father. How inscrutable are your judgments. Who has known your mind, O Lord? Who has given a gift to you that you might be repaid? For from you and through you and to you are all things. Glory be to you, O God, forever and ever. And all God's people said, Amen. Amen. If you're visiting with us for the first time, my name is Pastor Nick. I'm one of the pastors here at Ephesus, and we welcome you again. Uh, Typically, we preach through books of the Bible verse by verse, but this week and next week we're doing something a little different before we jump into our next um, book of the Bible. So, uh, the title this morning of my sermon is On Mission... Our mission, part one, and we'll do part two next week. And the key words for our worshipers in training, if you're following along, is family, worship, and love. And over a period of time and several meetings and conversations and email exchanges, the elders of Ephesus Church have come to an agreement on a mission statement for the church that we believe to be a good representation of who we want to be and what we want to be about as a family of faith. And we saw a need to define our mission and to begin to look at everything that we do as a church, whether it's our service to one another or to the community, our programs, our preaching, our teaching, our community groups, to see everything we do as a church through the window of mission for clarity and direction and purpose. So we want to ask the question of everything before us that we strive to do. How does this fit? How is this consistent with our mission As a church. So, we want to spend this Sunday and next Sunday unpacking that mission statement. And then from there, we're going to try and make it visible around the church so it's always in front of us. And we hope that it's something that every member will commit to memory and work through it in families and in our ministries within the church. So, this morning, I'm going to tell you what the mission statement is. Then, we're going to provide a biblical framework for a mission statement. And then we'll begin to look at what this mission statement has been designed to say and how it's been designed to lead us. And next week we'll conclude by looking at the second part of the mission statement that we're not going to finish today. And then we'll consider what this means for the way forward. And I assure you this is something that we have thought very hard about. And there are reasons for every single word that is outlined in our statement. And obviously, it could be worded differently than it is, but we've worked hard to cover every base and hope that we have a very robust biblical overview reflected in this statement. So I also want to make clear up front that we, the church, and this is vitally important, do not bear the burden of having the final authority or word in any form. God has that word. We are not infallible. We ascribe that to God and His revealed word in the Bible. We do not bear the burden of permanence. Ways of saying great things come and go. We don't need to fight to make this statement permanent. God and His truth are permanent. Isaiah 40, verse 8, The grass withers and the flower fades, but the Word of our God will stand forever. So our mission statement is the focus of one group of God's people. Ephesus Church. In one place at one time, under the providential influences of our circumstances. We have a contribution to make to the work of the church invisible, the global church. We have a proclaiming to do in the world, and we believe this will help us to stay focused on that path and will create for us a framework to build on as we see ministry and service through what we are going to outline. So, with that said, I'm going to tell you the mission statement, and then we'll talk about the biblical framework for mission, and then we'll walk on through the first part of it. So, here's the mission statement it'll be up behind me. Ephesus Church is a family of faith that exists to worship God with joy, to love our neighbors, to see transformed lives. And to, be, and to send and be sent for the spread of the gospel through Jesus Christ. That's the mission statement. So let me provide a biblical framework for mission, and then we'll come back to this. We want to be more focused on being a people that refers to our existence as a church as being a people who are on mission. We don't simply want to exist as a local congregation. We want to be a local body that is on mission with one another to fulfill the biblical mandate to not be hearers of the Word only, but to be doers of the Word. In other words, we understand that as we walk outside these doors... As we go into life outside these doors, into our workplaces and our neighborhoods and our schools and our favorite hangouts and our restaurants and ball fields and golf courses or whatever else we do and wherever we go, that we are on mission so that we can be living out and proclaiming the gospel for the glory of Jesus Christ. So with that said, brothers and sisters, Pastor Steve and I are not the only members of Ephesus Church who are in full-time ministry. We are all called to a lifetime of full-time ministry. It begins when you are justified by faith. And it continues until you fall before the throne. With our brothers and sisters from every tongue, tribe, people, and nation to worship our King and Savior, Jesus Christ, forever and ever. So, your job is an opportunity for ministry. You're going to Body Works or to the Y to work out is an opportunity for ministry. Christians are to be living lives that are filled from minute to minute, seeing everything as an opportunity for ministry. We are called to be on mission. I don't want to get too far away from the Bible. I get a little nervous when we don't stay closely tethered to the Scriptures. So let's get in the text. Romans chapter 15 will be in verse 18 to begin with. Romans 15, verse 18. As I said, this won't be a typical sermon this morning. It's a little difficult for me because I'm used to staying tied to a specific text. We're going to move around a little to get the heart of what we're doing here. So stick with me. Romans 15, starting in verse 18. The Apostle Paul writes, For I will not venture to speak of anything except... What Christ has accomplished through me to bring the Gentiles to obedience by word and deed, by the power of signs and wonders, by the power of the Spirit of God, so that from Jerusalem and all the way around to Illyricum, I have fulfilled the ministry of the gospel of Christ, and thus I make it my ambition to preach the gospel Not where Christ has already been named, lest I build on someone else's foundation. But as it is written, those who have never been told of him will see. And those who have never heard will understand. This that we have read is the Apostle Paul's mission statement. This is God's call on his life and how it is being worked out in his life. Look at verse 18 again. For I will not venture to speak of anything except what Christ has accomplished through me to bring the Gentiles to obedience. By word and deed. So Paul's emphasis is on the fact that the ministry that he is doing, his focus in his ministry is not something that has been cleverly designed or something that he thought sounded good, so he wanted to stick to it. But it is something that It is what Christ has worked through him. It's not a self-designed, self-sustaining mission. It's the very work of Jesus Christ continued on through the Apostle Paul. He continues in verse 19, By the power of signs and wonders, by the power of the Spirit of God so that from Jerusalem and all the way around to Illyricum, I have fulfilled the ministry of the gospel of Christ. Notice, it's by the power of the Spirit of God. It is the Spirit of God who gave Him the power to preach the gospel fruitfully from Jerusalem to Illyricum. So we see then that this is a work of God. But then look at verses 20 and 21. We see Paul's own planning. We see his own intentionality in this God-designed, Holy Spirit-sustaining mission. Look at verse 20. And thus I make it my ambition to preach the gospel, not where Christ has already been named, lest I build on someone else's foundation. But as it is written, those who have never been told of Him will see, and those who have never heard will understand. So notice two things here. First, Paul has a very clear focus, a very clear aim regarding his mission and how it is to be carried out. He wasn't getting up every single day saying, oh, it's a beautiful day and I wish I had some idea about what my mission was today. I wish I knew what I was supposed to be doing and how I was supposed to be going about doing it. Jesus, would you please fill me in because I'm really lost here. No, Paul had an ambition. He had a mission statement. He had direction to preach the gospel, not where Christ has already been named. This was Paul's mission, and it shaped everything that he did. Everywhere he went, it shaped the meaning and purpose of his life. It was Paul's passion to make Christ known amongst the people who have never heard the gospel. Secondly, I want you to notice that Paul's mission statement is based is built on Scripture. Verse 21 is a quote from Isaiah 52, verse 15. For that which has not been told them, they see, and that which they have not heard, they understand. So how did Paul derive his mission statement? He looked at the Scriptures, saw that Isaiah was writing about Jesus the Messiah and found within it his purpose as an apostle of Jesus Christ. He saw the application to his own situation and built his entire mission on it. Remember this, not everyone in the Scriptures and not everyone today is called to do the same thing as the Apostle Paul did. Timothy was called to stay and be a pastor in Ephesus Titus was to stay in Crete. But Paul's mission was to preach the gospel where Christ had not yet been named. So I think we can draw some conclusions from that, at least at a very basic level about thinking and preparing and writing a mission statement, having a clear focus of what our mission is so that we can be on mission And we don't think it's only a good thing to do, but we believe it's a biblical thing to do to define our mission. Of course, the mission statement, like Paul's, should be rooted in Scripture and should be clear to us that it is from biblical convictions and commands that we can say our mission statement speaks to nothing, speaks to nothing except that which Christ has accomplished through His Word and is continuing to accomplish through His people. Okay, I'm going to take this a step further now. And I might get some emails because of this, but love me. I think it's important. I think we need to go here, okay? If our faith, if Christianity is just about individual conversion then all we get is self-seeking, self-centered things that say, fix me, make much of me, heal me, make me right. But the gospel, the good news of Christ is that we've been called to a greater purpose. We've been called to see greater glories. We've been called to be on mission. And when we're on mission, everything flows through that lens. It all flows through Jesus commanding us, You go tell everyone everywhere that death and sorrow and injustice under my reign are over. And you tell them what I have saved you from and what I have saved you to and what I will continue to save others from and to. Every bit of our lives now gets filtered through that reality. That death and sorrow and injustice are already under the feet of God. And that He has saved us from His wrath to His Son and a life of obedience. And He continues to save others from His wrath and to His Son and to a life of obedience. And I'm going to be honest with you this morning. I think one of the reasons a lot of things that we see in the Christian world in America is a little bit goofy. Is because it becomes self-help to a lot of us. Jesus, my marriage is in trouble. Help me. Jesus, my kid is acting like a moron. Please help me. Jesus, I lost my job. Please help me. And look, all of these things are good and right to be asking for Jesus to help us in. Of course, I'll amen every one of those prayers and I'll even help you through them. But this is incredibly important. These things all take place on mission. Mission exposes who you really are. If you're ashamed of Christ... Being on mission exposes that. If you love this world more than the idea of the idea of the wedding supper with the lamb, mission exposes that. How do you grow into the fullness of Christ in submission to him in the mission? Because it reveals to you who you really are. Am I on it or not? Am I living the gospel or not? And this truth can be devastatingly horrible to us, right? Because it reveals that some of us say, okay, God, here's the plan. I've got this issue with gossip and I want you to fix my gossip problem while I continue to be uppermost in my own affections. Loving my own life and my own comfort and my own... Pursuit of joy more than I care for your name at all. This gossip thing, it's getting a little bit in the way of my happiness, so if you fix that, we'll be good. Whatever it is, fill in the blank. Lust, money, possessions, whatever it is that you may be asking for. But you see, the mission exposes more than anything else where our affections really are. And look, I get, I get that things in this world are hard to resist. There's some nice stuff out there in the world, and it's working hard to get us to love it. It is hard to go to heaven from America. But you see, the gospel sets us free. It puts us on mission and it sends us out. And we know when we know what the mission is and what it calls us to, it reveals the deep recesses of our heart, and it can't help but drudge up the muck that's at the bottom. And all that junk that's settled at the base of my heart gets drudged up and brought to the surface so that when I'm on mission, my only option is either to deal with it and be sanctified, even though it's really painful sometimes, or to let it sit and never really be on mission at all. And remember, this isn't me doing it. It's God's grace and God's mercy restoring what's gone wrong in me and in you and in the world. But you see, when we're on mission, we realize we've got a lifetime of dependence on God ahead of us. And we've got a a lifetime of working through this thing called mission. Mission. And figuring out what it means and how I function within it and how it changes me from the inside out. So think about this. As we start considering being on mission in general and our mission statement specifically, think about these things. Could it be that you live in your neighborhood, work where you work, play where you play, know who you know, walk with whom you walk, because God, in His predetermined plan, put you there to herald the good news? Maybe it's not an accident that you have the job you have even if you don't particularly like it. Maybe where you live isn't some random circumstance because you got transferred in your job and that was the house that was available to buy at the time or because you got a good deal on some land, but it's a preordained move by God. And look, I know some of us have some really hard neighbors, especially around here, because a lot of our neighbors are so enamored with the world and so in love with everything that the world has to offer, but everyone thinks they're a Christian or they think they know what it means to be a Christian and they really don't want any of it. The first week we moved into our neighborhood, we had some friendly neighbors until they dropped that question that always extracts some pretty interesting responses. What do you do for a living? <laughs> uh, I'm, a, I'm a pastor. Oh. Yeah. All right. Cool. Sounds good. See you around the neighborhood. And they're gone. And then they do some secret ninja moves to avoid like eye contact when I'm driving or when we're walking through the neighborhood and trying to say hi to our neighbors that pretend like we don't exist. So I know about having hard neighbors, but it doesn't change the fact that we are on mission and we've got a lot to do. And when we're not living and striving to be on mission, so sting, we're liars. When we're not on mission, we're saying we love Christ. And we're saying we want to see His kingdom advance and that we want to do all that He has commanded us, but we're not doing anything other than reading and listening to sermons and learning more truth, which is all great and very important. But when we don't live on mission, we're liars. It's a lot more comfortable to assume that the Christian life is that we just need to sit back and learn more and wait for Jesus to come back. But that's not living in obedience to God's Word. So up front, I want to challenge all of us. And I am especially talking to myself. Instead of just studying the playbook, can we get out on the field and start running some of those plays? There's a lot of Christians who can talk through every play in the book, but very few want to engage anybody with it. Why? Well, I've got that gossip problem. Well, then submit to Christ. Confess your sins. Repent. Turn away from them and live on mission. It will reveal that stuff. And it's going to be painful sometimes because God's just going to rip it out from you and replace it with grace and mercy. But in the end, it's awesome. Because now you're not sitting on the bench wondering how the game's going to go. You're in the game and you're fighting hard to win. And the best part is you already know the outcome. The gospel is penetrating the world. And do you know how it ends? With you and me in front of Him... With the kingdom of God, new heaven and new earth, established, no more sin, no more evil, no more injustice, no more pain, no more sorrow. God's redeemed. God's elect. God's kingdom. Kingdom of God fully established and without end. Don't you want to be in the midst of that? Then we need to get on mission. We need to be on mission so this is our attempt, our goal, is to try and clarify that for us as a body of believers. We're trying to make more clear what it looks like for us as a local congregation, a local expression of the body of Christ. So now let's look at our mission statement again, and we'll begin working through it this morning, drawing from the Scriptures to show us why this is the mission That we have and why we believe God has purposed for us to be focused on these specific things. Let's read it again. Ephesus Church is a family of faith that exists to worship God with joy. To love our neighbors. To see transformed lives. And to send and be sent for the spread of the gospel through Jesus Christ. So we're going to do two parts of this this morning. The first is Ephesus Church is a family of faith. The first statement here is intended to identify us as a local congregation, not as a club or a social gathering, but as a local congregation. And also to make clear that the church is not a building or buildings, but it is a family of brothers and sisters that live and serve alongside one another. So where do we see this in the Bible? Look with me in Ephesians chapter 1. Ephesians chapter 1, and we're going to start with the last two words of verse 4. Ephesians one, second part of verse four, "In love, he predestined us for adoption as sons through Jesus Christ, according to the purpose of His will, to the praise of His glorious grace, with which he has blessed us in the beloved." Did you catch that? In love, he predestined for what? Adoption through Jesus Christ. So what is that? What is adoption? What happens in adoption? God did not just invite us to be Christians. God is not inviting people to be Christians. He chooses us. He calls us. And He has adopted us to be His own children. And now we have the great privilege of calling Him Abba, Father as the Holy Spirit continues to free our hearts from our orphan-like ways. And it is because of this work of Jesus, crushed on the cross, becoming sin on our behalf, taking on the eternal wrath of God. It is because of this that instead of enduring the wrath of God, For in eternity, we are adopted as sons and daughters of God, and He will never love us more or less than He does right now. What a wondrous, eternal love this is. Praise God. We don't think about this often enough. We don't consider enough the great doctrine of adoption. Christians focus a lot on horizontal adoption. That is, adopting children to become members of our families. And there's a big movement in the church right now to do that. There was a conference about it this last weekend. And that is great and glorious. And something my wife and I want to pursue in our lives, Lord willing. But we cannot truly grasp the importance and significance of horizontal adoption until we grasp the significance of vertical adoption. God adopting us into His family. He looked amongst the orphans. And He chose those whom He would call His own. And He made a legal transaction in our justification. And transfer was made from one family to the next. And then the glorious... Truth that he became our father. Look at Ephesians 2, starting in verse 1. And you were dead. "...in the trespasses and sins in which you once walked, following the course of this world, following the prince of the power of the air, the spirit that is now at work, and the sons of disobedience, among whom we all once lived in the passions of our flesh, carrying out the desires of the body and the mind, and were by nature children of wrath like the rest of mankind." And so Paul here, you see, identifies us. Sons of disobedience... Children of wrath. And then the glorious verse 4 through 10. But God, always great words being rich in mercy because of this great love with which He loved us, even when we were dead in our trespasses made us alive together with Christ, by grace you have been saved and raised up with Him and seated with Him in the heavenly places in Christ Jesus, so that in the coming ages He might show the immeasurable riches of His grace in kindness toward us in Christ Jesus. For by grace you have been saved through faith, and this is not your own doing. It is the gift of God. Not a result of works. So that no one may boast. For we are his workmanship. Created in Christ Jesus. For good works. Which God prepared beforehand. That we should walk in them. No longer sons of disobedience. No longer children of wrath. Now Children of the Most High God. And not only children of God, but children of God who have obtained an inheritance, as Paul makes clear in chapter 1, verse 11. So you see that our understanding that we are brothers and sisters comes from our understanding that we are adopted into a family together, united with one another in Christ not one with a greater standing than the other, but with equal footing. Counted as, Ephesians 1, 4, holy and blameless before God. Please do not take this lightly. Please don't take those words, brother and sister, lightly. The implications of that are loaded. When you call someone brother or sister, don't just let that be a casual term that you throw around in your conversations. You're affirming, you're standing with them as children of God. You're saying we have the same father who loves us and has rescued us and has adopted us and who calls us his and because of that I can now call you mine, my brother, my sister. These are not just words. They are hugely significant truths that say something about our standing with one another. So as we consider our mission, it is infinitely important that we know who we are in relationship to one another. Not acquaintances, not friends, not fellow church members. No, something even far greater than blood. We're brothers and sisters in Christ. And that is an unbreakable bond that we have with all Christians, past, present, and future. And Jesus is our elder brother. And praise be to him forever and ever. Amen. And so if you look around and don't see the people sitting around you in this way, I hope you'll consider this reality. And I hope we will all make it our mission to live and to work and to respond and to love one another in a way that reflects our unbreakable bond as brothers and sisters. That means we sacrifice for one another, that means we encourage and help one another, that means we speak well of each other and handle our conflicts with a great desire to restore broken and damaged relationships. It means we hang on tight with one another, even when things get rough and we don't know what tomorrow holds. It means we rejoice together and we weep together. It means we don't walk out on each other. It means we fulfill Galatians 6.10 As we have opportunity, let us do good to everyone and especially to those who are of the household of faith. Brothers and sisters strive to do good to everyone, especially each other. Because we are a family of faith, brothers and sisters in Christ. Let's look at the second part and then we'll be done. Ephesus Church is a family of faith that exists to worship God with joy. Look back at Ephesians chapter 1. Why did God adopt us as, verse 5, sons through Jesus Christ according to the purposes of His will? What was God's ultimate purpose in adoption? Look at verse 6. To the praise of His glorious grace. A more literal Rendering to the praise of the glory of His grace. God has created us and all of creation for the ultimate purpose of worshiping Him. The catechism's first question makes it clear. What is the chief end of man? What is man's purpose? To glorify God and enjoy Him forever. Or as I like to say, to glorify God by enjoying Him forever. All men everywhere will endlessly strive for joy, and that joy is sought most passionately in whom or what we worship. So glorifying God, worshiping God, and enjoying God are not two separate aims. They are the same aim. You get at one by doing the other you are able to glorify God when and only when you enjoy God. Therefore, our worship, our coming together here and in our homes with our families and in our private worship is to pursue our joy. We are focusing our attention and seeking to have our affections fixed on praising the glory of the grace of God in Jesus Christ. We, as a people of God, must be mastered by the grace of the glory of God. We must stand in awe of Christ because of who He is, what He has accomplished on our behalf, and what He continues to accomplish as He sanctifies us and keeps us so that none of His sheep will fall away. And This is the essence of our existence. This is why we come together. This is why we exist as a family. This is why we are a local congregation of believers, to worship God with joy. And I want to challenge your thinking a little bit here. Let me give you some scriptures, and then I'll tell you what I'm getting at. In Acts chapter 17, verses 22 through 34, the Apostle Paul is addressing the men of Athens in the Areopagus on Mars Hill. He takes a quick inventory, walks around, and he sees idols everywhere. He sees statues and altars that were objects of their worship, and he quickly turns to the issue of proclaiming to them the God of whom they have called the unknown God. The God unknown to them, Paul argues, is the one true God, the Father of our Lord Jesus Christ and the Creator of all things. I want to get to the most interesting part in this interaction is the beginning of Paul's explanation. He says, the God who made the world and everything in it, being Lord of heaven and earth, does not live in temples made by man, nor is he served by human hands as though he needed anything, since he himself gives to all mankind life and breath and everything. Likewise in Romans 11:35 Paul writes who has given a gift to God that he might be repaid Indeed God reminded the lowly Job of this reality who has first given to me that I should repay him whatever is under the whole heaven is mine And in light of it all Paul asks us to consider in 1 Corinthians 4 what do you have that you did not receive If then you received it, why do you boast as if you did not receive it? So in talking about worship, we have to think hard about how these truths measure up with our understanding of what worship is and how it's accomplished. I think a lot of Christians understand worship, private, family, and corporate worship as coming before God... To give something to him. But true Christian worship, as I see it in the Bible, is receiving from God. And at first, this probably falls on your ears a little bit shocking. But I think it's exactly what Paul is getting at. If God is not served by human hands... And if we are unable to give a gift to God because all that exists is rightfully His, a proper understanding of worship must be that we are going before Him empty handed. And if you get this, it's monumental, it's groundbreaking, it's life changing because all of a sudden you are freed to reflect back to God, His worth and His magnificence with joy, unbound from the chains of obligation. No longer is worship about giving, because we realize we have nothing to give. It's about being emptied and receiving because we need God. And we want to heighten our affections and receive a greater abundance of joy in our own lives. Approaching God in receive mode is to approach God with the understanding that He alone can satisfy. And that He alone is worthy of our complete devotion. And when this happens, you are refracting the glory of God like a perfectly cut diamond in the hot summer sun, refracting the light to all who can see. To glorify God is not to add something to Him as if He could be more glorious than He already is. To glorify God is to expand our view of God and to expand our treasuring of God above all things. To glorify God is to see Him more like He truly is. Therefore, to worship God is to go to God with this understanding of His worth and value, longing to be united more intimately with Him for your joy. This is why God requires worship. Not because He needs you to tell Him of His worth. And not because he needs to be reassured that he is God. He knows that quite well. God requires that every man worship him because it is what is best for man. When we're thirsty and we're parched, we go to a source of water to be refreshed. Likewise, when our souls are thirsty, we need the water of life so that we will never thirst again. So we exist as a family of faith to worship God with joy and be filled with deep satisfaction that He is lavishing upon you the greatest gift that you will ever receive, namely Himself. Worship is for your joy because rightly placed joy is the greatest means available to glorify God, thus achieving our purpose on this earth. So as you sing, as you pray, as you hear or read from the Bible or participate in the ordinances of the church, don't assume you are doing something great for God. Be assured that He is doing the greatest thing for you. And in all honesty, we could stop right here with the mission statement. If we all rightly orient our hearts and our minds on these two things, that we are a family of faith that exists to worship God with joy, everything else that we have in this mission statement would naturally flow right out of that. But we want to have clarity and we want to have focus and to know what it looks like, at least in broad categories that get applied in a thousand different ways as we work out life together. So we'll pick up next week where we left off this morning and continue to discover what it is to be on mission, fulfilling our mission as Ephesus Church. Let's pray together. Father, we are so grateful. And it's ringing in our hearts right now. Father, we are so grateful that you have designed worship to give us our greatest need and our greatest good that you give to us yourself. Help us, Father, to be a people who know and trust and believe and love that. And because of that, that we live on mission That we would love each other. That we would give ourselves to each other as a family of faith. And that brother and sister not just words we speak. But the great affections and truths that we have in our hearts. Because we know that we have been redeemed together. And that we call you together, Abba, Father. And that we know it is together that we have been redeemed in Christ Jesus. Help us, Father, to know that truth, to love that truth, to proclaim that truth, and to live according to that truth. Help us, Lord, to flee as far as we can from being hearers of the Word only. Help us, O God, to be doers of the Word, to work out our salvation with fear and trembling, and doing good works so that the world would see them and give glory to the Father who's in heaven because we are doing it all, the great desire to worship You with joy forevermore. We love You, Father, and are so grateful for Your Word. We're so grateful for mission that You've given us purpose in our lives for us to fulfill. Now help us, O God, to be great missionaries to our culture, to go out from these doors and to live and work and play And hobby and do what we do, knowing we're on mission to bring glory to you and to make you known among the nations. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.